Hi everyone, welcome back to TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast, brought to you by TUI, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. Cycling has become more and more popular in many places around the world during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. To react to the trend and strengthen the resilience of urban mobility systems, TUMI is awarding various pilot projects around the world. One of those TUMI COVID challenges is currently developed in the city of Cuenca, Ecuador. We are happy to have James Thome as a supporter for this TUMI COVID challenge on today's episode. James is director at the Copenhagenized Design Company. The Danish company is famous for its Copenhagenized Index, which is a global ranking of the most bicycle-friendly cities. In general, Copenhagenization describes its design strategy, which combines urban planning and design to make cities more accessible to cyclists and pedestrians. James has been closely coordinating with the municipality of Cuenca on how to develop and design safe intersections for cyclists in the city. My colleague Lina will talk to James about the role of cycling infrastructure for the sustainable mobility transformation and his experience with the recent two-week COVID challenge in Cuenca. So let's listen in. Hi, James. Great to have you with us this morning. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're quite excited to talk to you because you're currently implementing something that's very new at Tumi, which is the Tumi COVID challenges. So you're joining a team in Cuenca, Ecuador, to get the cycling infrastructure there ready for the pandemic and even safer for cyclists. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, what role does safe cycling infrastructure play to enable sustainable mobility transformations in our cities? Well, actually, safe cycling infrastructure is sort of the fundamental uh, key to making cycling safe in any environment, whether you're in uh, Ecuador or Denmark. And infrastructure is key not only for cycling to be safe, but for any mode of transportation. For instance, if you look to, to driving an automobile, you know, that's not really exactly a safe experience until the roads that you're driving on are safe as well. And the same goes for any other mode of transportation. If you look to subways, for instance, a uh, subway system is not safe until you have, you know, safe uh, platforms, safe rail lines, you know, these very foundational things that actually make the mode of transportation run itself. And it's also really important to, to look to, to the users and especially the potential users. There's some really interesting studies that have been conducted around the world, actually looking at different people's sort of relationship to cycling looking to the overall population and how they feel about cycling. And what we see when these uh, studies are repeated time and time again, there's a small fraction of people around uh, 8, 8% that are very confident and happy to cycle. And they're even doing so right now, even if the infrastructure is not exactly great. Uh, and there's about a third of people that just cycling is not for them. No way, no how. Uh, it could be physical limitations, it could be geographical limitations, but cycling is just not for them. But then we see over and over again, a majority of people that are interested in cycling, but concerned. And what they're concerned about is the safety of cycling. And that really is, this, they're concerned about the safety of the existing infrastructure. And it's only by building the infrastructure that makes people feel safe, are you going to be able to get these sort of, uh, these interested but concerned people onto the bicycle. So all around the world, there is this sort of, uh, how do I say it, this, um, uh, this latent demand. People that are waiting to cycle 
that are interested in this this service, this product, uh, but only once the infrastructure is there to make them feel safe and confident as they do so. I think that's a very important point because I think in many cities, when we see a hesitation to create uh, to create safe cycling infrastructure, the argument often is, oh, well, there's very few cyclists, so why invest in infrastructure? Whereas, you know, it's the other way around. You have to create that safe infrastructure for cyclists to kind of, you know, be willing or be brave enough to go out there and, um, yeah, take part in traffic. So that brings me to my next question, which is um, about the core design elements of that Tumi COVID challenge in Ecuador. How are you making that infrastructure safe for cyclists? Well, we're approaching this project just as we approach any other project when it comes to building safe and uh, comfortable cycling infrastructure, and that is understanding the vulnerable users. Uh, in this case, it's the cyclists. And once you make them feel safe and comfortable cycling down the street in an urban setting, then you're making the overall street experience safer for all users, for pedestrians as well, but also for motorists by giving dedicated space To, to cyclists. And this makes for a more sort of predictable and legible streetscape. So when you have physically protected cycling infrastructure, as a motorist, you know exactly where you belong. As a cyclist, you know where you belong. And as a pedestrian, you also know where you belong. You don't have this sort of messy weaving of, uh, of modes into each other's space that just makes things unpredictable and unsafe. So with this project, we are focusing on making cyclists feel safe and comfortable, uh, particularly at uh, a few key intersections in Cuenca. And there's some sort of design elements that we have incorporated into this approach to make sure that especially intersections are safe and, and uh, comfortable again. And it's really important for us to focus on the intersection because this is really the most vulnerable and the most precarious point of any network, right? A network of cycling infrastructure is just like a chain. It's only as strong as its weakest point. And oftentimes that weakest point is the, infra the intersection. So by looking at these intersections and making them safer for cyclists, then we're ensuring that the whole network of cycling infrastructure is safe for cyclists. And what does that look like? Well, in this case, with these intersections, we're doing design elements such as a, uh, a pulled back stop line. So this is something very fairly simple. But what we do here is we just set the stop line for motorists about five meters behind the stop line for cyclists. And what this does is it physically gets the cyclists out front of the motorists outside of the blind spot. And that's so important because we see in all contexts, the most dangerous uh, situation is when cars or trucks are turning right at an intersection and they catch the cyclist in their blind spot. So what this does is it just gets the cyclist in a more visible area and uh, improves the safety uh, for all road users. We're also looking at a uh, We're also looking at infrastructure at these intersections, such as the, the bicycle crossing. So painting a stripe through the intersection that highlights to motorists where to expect cyclists, where to expect these vulnerable users. Similarly, as, uh, as we already do for pedestrians, you know, the, the striped zebra crossing, as it's often called, through an intersection, the role of that is to highlight where these vulnerable users will be. And so we're taking sort of a version of that and applying it to cyclists through the intersection as well. Uh, you also mentioned what is the importance of this during and after a pandemic. And that's a really good point to make because the bicycle has been time and time again, it has proven itself as a very resilient tool, as a very resilient mode of transportation in all sorts of crises. 
whether you're talking about um, the earthquake that rocked Mexico City a couple of years back, right away we saw how people were turning to the bicycle to deliver um, goods throughout the city and also to get to the emergency points where maybe cars and ambulances weren't able to get because of uh, all the rubble on the streets. Other crises such as a... Um, a, a larger scale public transportation strike, however you want to see that, uh, we see again the bicycle step up as a very resilient and um, ready for action uh, tool. We've seen that last year in, in Paris and France in general, when there's been public transportation strikes uh, that have made public, uh, yeah, that have made a large portion of transportation options, you know, buses, trains, uh, trams, uh, less available. And all of a sudden, you saw Parisians turning to the bicycle like they haven't done for decades. And again, the bicycle, has, uh, in that case, has proven itself as a uh, practical mode of transportation. And now with corona, uh, with the COVID uh, crisis and the pandemic, we are seeing, once again, the bicycle as a, as a tool that's ready to, to serve cities. People that are trying to avoid uh, public transportation, unfortunately, are seeing the bicycle as a perfect solution to get to where they need to go um, in a timely manner. And as we have more people cycling during these times, during these crises, we need to make sure that they are safe when doing so, more so than ever. Uh, and that really comes down to, repeat myself again, to making safe cycling infrastructure. And that solves the immediate challenge that we're facing right now with more people cycling due to uh, COVID-19. But at the same time, it sets up a framework to to uh, ensure that cycling is a, an everyday choice for mobility into the future. Because cycling is not only about you know, dealing with the current crisis we have on hand, it's about making more uh, healthy cities. It's about making more sustainable cities. And that's something that is timeless. And as you're implementing this project, have you experienced any obstacles or any troubles, or is it really a smooth process that you're doing? Well, this particular project that we've been working on in, in Cuenca is, uh, you know, it's, we've only been doing it uh, for a couple of weeks now. So there haven't been so many large obstacles in terms of the process so far. We've been working with a really great team, uh, both at GIZ and as well at the municipality in Cuenca. And we've had some really fruitful uh, and constructive conversations uh, on both ends. And yeah, I wouldn't really say, uh, uh, I wouldn't say there've been any serious obstacles, but uh, our approach to workshops and capacity building with our our clients and our partners is to sort of take a pedagogical approach. You know, really explaining the infrastructure and explaining the solutions uh, in a in an open and uh, easy to understand way, and that has really helped move the project along and sort of help get people on board uh, within the project team. But beyond the project team itself, there have been some obstacles that we've faced uh, when looking to to the context we're working in. Uh, for instance, the street widths has been something that has been uh, sort of a sticking point, but uh, that's not something that can't be addressed. Uh, in some time, in some cases, the uh, the streets that we have been looking at have been quite narrow, uh, and it's difficult to imagine how you can squeeze in cycling infrastructure into the pre-existing. Uh, right of way and to sort of tackle that uh or to address that one of the most important things or the key thing to do is to you know question the status quo we need to step back and understand why cars have been sort of given this 
so much space in our city streets. Uh, and when we look at some of these corridors, we see that there's uh, four lanes of traffic, two in each direction, sometimes as wide as four meters in each direction. So we can look to narrowing lanes, uh, which also makes motors behave safer. When they have a narrower lane, they have to really pay attention. They can't be sort of driving, uh, checking their phone. They really have to pay attention as they go down these narrow these narrower lanes. And in doing so, we're able to free up space for uh, for cyclists. Finding uh, 1.7 to 2.2 meters on either side of the of the corridor, where we can then put in protected uh, bicycle lanes. You've mentioned that you're only a couple of weeks in the project, um, but just now you've raised a really important point in terms of changing mindsets and um, kind of refocusing our attention on different types of vehicles on the road. So are you expecting that there will also be, you know, support or maybe even some resistance from within the local public? And if so, how do you intend to address that? Yeah, well, of course, in this project so far, we have received a lot of constructive uh, conversations with the project team and, and some support as well. Um, and that's been it's been a pleasure working with the team in Cuenca and working with uh, GIZ on this project. But in our line of work, pushback is normal. You know, getting uh, when it comes to sort of redistributing how we share space in the city. Of course, there's going to be some pushback. There's going to be some tough conversations, uh, especially when it comes to people actually feeling like they're losing space. Uh, and that is normal. That's, that's, that's to be predicted. But to face these arguments and to be prepared for those, these arguments, we always talk about the numbers, the data. Because in many cases, the numbers don't lie. Moving uh, The bicycle is a very efficient way of moving people through the city. Um. For instance, if you look at a, for instance, if you look at a bicycle lane of 2.2 meters wide, you know a very standard width that is comfortable for you know people to cycle safely and also for people to pass one another at a comfortable pace and not feel sort of squeezed or not feel uncomfortable. So at this width, you can actually move upwards of 6,000 people per hour. That's an incredible number. That's that's almost double what a standard uh, 3.5 meter wide um, car lane can move. So it's really efficient in terms of moving people. But then we can also look at the public health numbers. Um, if you have a portion of the population that is regularly getting physical activity by cycling to work, then you have a healthier workforce. Then you have people that are taking less sick days. Then you have children that are more uh, focused at school. So again, you have a more productive workforce and a more productive uh, population in that sense. You can also look at the uh, the costs of the infrastructure. Comparing the cost of a cycle lane compared to the cost of any other mode of transportation, whether you're talking about automobiles, bus lanes, or, or trams, it's incredibly affordable. So there's very few reasons not to actually invest in cycling uh, once you start looking at the numbers and once you have these arguments ready. From a professional uh, perspective, Uh, as a planner, as a policymaker, it's also important to come with these numbers ready, right? Uh, you know, looking at statistics from, I don't know, Copenhagen or Toronto may not go so far when you're looking in Cuenca, right? People want local relevant data. So what's really important uh, to what we've learned is it's also really important, you know, when you start these endeavors to, to get a strong data collection program right from the beginning. So that when the sort of public discourse changes or when the public discourse challenges 
these sorts of projects, challenges cycling infrastructure, you're ready to say, well, actually, uh, on this project in Cuenca, we are able to move X number of cyclists per hour. Uh, and this is actually something worth investing in. Or you're able to say, well, actually, we built this infrastructure in Cuenca, and it only cost so much uh, compared to other modes of transportation. Or if you can say, you mentioned earlier that a common criticism is like, yeah, well, nobody cycles here. If you can say, well, we built this infra- we built this uh, this bicycle lane along this corridor here, and now all of a sudden, cycling has gone up X number percent. Uh, you're starting to build up the sort of arsenal of talking points, arsenal of data that can directly address the criticism that that may come. So you've highlighted the importance now of local data to realize these types of solutions in each individual context. But I'm wondering, and I, I think I'd like to use my last question for you today on that question, do you also see value, and if so, which in international discussions on sustainable mobility in terms of you know developing solutions together and coming up with new ways of how to really make our cities more sustainable? Do you see value in that as well? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's in our name, Copenhagenes. Uh, this is really something that we believe in. And uh, yeah, I should say that our name, Copenhagenes, we're not trying to make every city into Copenhagen. That would be incredibly boring. Uh, <laughs> I would hate to see that happen. That's that's not the goal. But what is sort of fundamental to the work that we do is the idea of knowledge transfer, right? Looking to other proven models around the world and adapting to local contexts. So seeing what works in Copenhagen and trying to learn how that can work for Cuenca, for instance, whether those factors are big or small. So whether it's large things such as a network of cycle highways that can uh, accommodate commuters from as far as uh, 20 kilometers away or smaller scale solutions such as a, a simple pulled back stop line that makes waiting at a red light that much safer. There are sort of transferable elements that can work in many different contexts. And this again is is nothing particular to cycling. Knowledge transfer uh, in terms of policy is is the norm. You know, looking at how different uh, jurisdictions have been uh, successful and learning from that is uh, has something that's been happening for centuries. Uh, there's actually one historic example that I always like to turn to uh, that is fantastic, and that is uh, Pont Neuf, the, uh, the bridge in Paris. I'm not sure... Maybe some of the listeners are, uh, are familiar with it. And it's this historic bridge that crosses a portion of the, the River Seine in, in Paris. And this bridge was actually built in the early 1600s. So, yeah, literally centuries ago. Um, but it was a whole new way of building urban bridges at the time. For one, it had these open vistas that hadn't been done before. Traditionally, bridges were financed by building uh shops along either side so that would block off the view but this one was financed in a different way that allowed these open vistas up and down the river at the same time we have these sort of social spaces that were built into the bridge these sort of little bays along the edge that uh, pedestrians people could gather they could gossip they could flirt they could chat with their with their fellow citizens uh, which was also something new to you know design these uh, very welcoming and attractive uh, little public spaces was also um, new to Potneuf. The key thing that stands out to Potneuf for me was that there was a newfound way of separating modes of transportation. So there was actually um, a grade separation between the pedestrians 
and the horses and, and carts. So in other words, a sidewalk, a pavement, you know, physically separating the pedestrians from the other modes of transportation uh, to make for a more efficient and pleasurable streetscape or to make for more uh, efficient and pleasurable street experience, all of a sudden uh, made this, uh, this place something not only for, for locals to come and see and hang out, but also for policymakers from across Europe started traveling to Paris just to see this newfound piece of infrastructure and how they could learn from that. Uh, and this actually, you saw a knock-on effects of this actually lead, leading to the Westminster Pavement Act in the UK uh, decades later. So knowledge transfer in terms of uh, sustainable mobility, they probably didn't call it sustainable mo- mobility at the time, but knowledge transfer in terms of sustainable mobility is nothing new. And yeah, to get back to my earlier point, uh, looking to proven models uh, for urban solutions and sort of adapting to local context is key to uh, to finding the right solution. James, thank you so much. You've taken us on a trip from Europe to Ecuador and back again. It's been great fun talking to you and I look forward to catching up with you again once the To Me COVID challenge in Cuenca, Ecuador is implemented and you have some more insights for us on how to make um, intersections safer for cycling. Thanks a lot, James. Yeah, thank you for your time, Lena. Thank you, James and Lena for giving us an inside look at this great example of the hands-on changes you are promoting in Cuenca. We now have a better understanding of the role of safe and high-quality cycling infrastructure. I am really curious about the new bike lanes in the city and can't wait to have a safe ride on them. We hope you all enjoyed today's episode. This actually was the last episode of TTT for this year. We really enjoyed sharing our stories with you. But, of course, we will continue next year and again, we will be talking about sustainable mobility development all around the globe. We hope to see you again with lots of new interesting experts in 2021. So stay healthy, enjoy the holidays and have a good start into the new year. As always, thanks for tuning in and hear you next time.